I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is a special program from Safe Space Radio. Six million North Americans are caring for someone they love with dementia at home. Caregiving, you don't seek it out. If there's people in your life that you love, it happens to you. We know the predictable changes that a person with dementia goes through, forgetting names, getting lost, eventually not recognizing family members. But we don't hear as much about the journey that the caregiver is on as they try to cope with both progressive losses and an increasing amount of work. You're drowning and you can't come up for air. I couldn't just be this person in isolation. I was gonna breathe again. Over the next hour, we'll be hearing the stories of family caregivers for people with dementia and exploring some of the powerful things that individuals and communities can do that make a difference. That's coming up in a moment after the news. You're listening to Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist, and this is a special program about the untold struggles of family caregivers for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. For most people diagnosed with dementia, there will be a family member thrust into the role of caregiver. Men are increasingly taking on caregiving roles, but the majority of these family caregivers are women, and they often feel tremendous pressure to be the one who steps up and keeps their loved one at home. During the show, you'll hear from a number of family caregivers I spoke with, wives, daughters, daughters-in-law, about the unexpected challenges they faced. Dementia usually starts slowly, and the first signs are often small. I don't really know when it all started. It may have started longer ago than we thought of, but the key signs for us were little clues like putting the dishes in the cupboard dirty or only half-loading the dishwasher and just little odd things that you just go, Ma, why are you doing this? It's those little everyday things, like suddenly he didn't know how to make a cup of coffee for me in the morning. He forgot how to answer the door. I would get angry when he couldn't do something because I would think that he was putting it on. He didn't feel like doing it. We'd always had long conversations at the dinner table, and John started to not listen, but get up and go and wash the dishes. And I felt frustrated because I couldn't make him, so I would go back and sit at the table well, upset and angry. When it comes to caregivers, we often idealize, talking about their self-sacrifice, their generosity, their patience. But when we do this, we miss the messy parts of their experience. And dementia is really messy. It steadily gets worse, robs the person of their memory, and sometimes their voice, their movement, and even their personality. It can feel like the person is gone when they're still alive. To be a family member caring for someone like that is absurdly difficult. And caregivers for people with dementia suffer high rates of depression and premature death. Right now, dementia impacts over 6 million people in North America. And as the baby boom generation ages, a dementia boom will follow. The fact is, if you or someone you know lives beyond retirement age, dementia and the care it requires could very well become a huge part of your life. I think the first time that I was aware that there really was something seriously wrong beyond just being forgetful was when my daughter asked him to give the toast to the bride at her wedding. That's my mother, Claire Hallward. And the bride in this story, that's me. And not long earlier, he'd done a toast to the bride to one of his nieces. And he'd done it so beautifully. He was good at that. I remember I was standing at the front of the room at our reception, looking up at him, imagining he was about to say something sweet and loving. But when he got up, he wasn't making any sense at all. Instead, he began to ramble about the wedding and our neighbor, repeating himself in silly rhymes. And first I thought, my God, he's drunk. And then I thought, no, he can't be drunk. I'd never, ever seen him drunk. I felt so confused watching him drown in his own words. My husband gently took the mic and thanked him. 
gracefully getting him off the stage. I had a very good friend sitting at the table with me, and she realized I was upset. And she sort of patted me on the shoulder and said, Claire, people are very forgiving of the father of the bride at a wedding, so don't worry. But it wasn't just fatherly awkwardness. And as soon as my parents got home from the wedding, my mother called the doctor. The neurologist diagnosed my father with frontotemporal dementia, a rare kind that starts early. I remember standing in the hall while the doctor showed me the MRI of my dad's brain and seeing the dark liquid in places where there should have been brain tissue. I remember thinking, wow, this is what they mean when they say losing your mind. But it was a relief to know there was a reason for why he'd become so different. It made us rethink everything that had led up to that moment. And while it felt so good to forgive him, it was harder to forgive ourselves. We all felt guilty for the times we'd criticized him and complained to each other about how difficult it was to talk to him. Thinking about what lies ahead is hard, and for the first time, you're moving in different directions. You're not only wondering about the future for your loved one, but also what's ahead for yourself. And it's pretty daunting. On average, most people with dementia live for four to eight years, depending on their health and their age. In cases of early-onset dementia, before the age of 65, it can be 10 years or longer. It was scary. It was actually terrifying. Melinda's husband was a doctor in his late 50s. He'd begun to act strangely, including calling her 20 times a day from work. He, too, was diagnosed with early-onset dementia. You don't know what the future is going to hold. You know, two kids left to get through college, stay-at-home mom, and no real job skills, terrified of what was going to happen to him. Was I going to be able to take care of him? How were we going to make it work? Just so many questions. So many questions. The financial worries are real. Between paying for care, losing work hours, and sometimes having to retire, caring for someone with dementia typically costs families $34,000 a year. When you learn that a loved one has dementia, it begins to sink in that your life will never be the same again. August 15th, I got kicked in the gut. I remember the day. Liz Havu's mother had lived with Liz and her husband for years. One day, she had a minor car accident and didn't remember that the police had brought her home. So Liz decided to call a doctor. It seems like a small move, one phone call. But in retrospect, it was the moment when she became a caregiver. It was real. It was like, okay, Oh, crap, what am I going to do now? Now I really have to pay attention. I can't just blow it off. This is dementia, and I've got to deal with this. So how do you deal with this? A person you love and care about suddenly needs a lot more from you than they ever have. And of course, you want to help them. But over time, they won't be able to do the things that grown people do on their own. They'll have to give up driving and will even need help bathing and getting dressed. Somebody has to pick up the slack. She doesn't cook anymore. I don't even want her turning the pot on to boil water. And she doesn't know how to use the microwave efficiently. So it became a juggling act. A year after her mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, Liz and her husband were spending nearly all of their time taking care of her. My husband is the early morning person, so he puts her meds out for her. My job is to make sure she gets breakfast and lunch, and then I can leave for two or three hours. I don't want her alone for long periods of time. Liz's mom lived in an apartment attached to their home, and she'd always helped out around the house. They tried adapting her chores so she could still feel like she was contributing. I told her, I said, Mom, there's towels in the washer if you want to put them in the dryer. And I got home, and there was four inches of water in the high-efficiency washing machine. And I'm like, you can't open this when there's water in it. So, you know, now I will leave the basket of towels on the table if she wants to fold them. Of course, they're all folded wrong. It's hard because this was an independent woman, and I feel like I'm taking things away all the time. Unlike paid caregivers, a family member is not only giving the care, they are making the decisions. It's an uncomfortable new role that may generate conflict with the person with dementia and also with other family members who aren't as involved in the daily caregiving. When you are the one deciding that the person can no longer do something, like driving or traveling, 
it can feel like it's not the disease that's taking it away. It's you. This is Frances Randolph, whose husband had early-onset Alzheimer's. I had never done the financial stuff because he was an accountant, so I left it all in his hands. Suddenly, everything went through me, and I was the one in control. I think he resented that a lot. It's a double bind. The person with dementia may feel like the caregiver has all the power. But the caregiver often feels powerless. Powerless to stop the disease, and powerless when it comes to reasoning with someone who is no longer rational. We went for a walk, and I was holding him by the arm, largely to hang on to him. Claire Hallward. We got down to this big intersection, a very busy one, and he said, I'm going to cross. And I said, John, we have to wait for the light. And he flung me off with incredible strength. I could not believe it. And he ran into the traffic. Cars honked, and I stood there with tears of fury pouring down my cheeks. Partly fury, partly panic that I was going to see him smushed in front of my eyes. But there were no accidents, which was incredible. And he got across to the other side, and he called back, See? (laughs) Anyway, I decided I was never going to go for a walk with him again. Caregiving for people with dementia means you are caring for an adult, and adults are large and strong. So helping them do things physically is challenging. You can't just pick them up and move them. I had spent a lot of time caretaking children, and I thought that it would be the same. (laughs) And it really, really wasn't. Sarah McLaughlin became the caretaker for her mother-in-law, who developed dementia in her late 50s. The hardest thing was just expecting to be able to guide her like I could kids, because I was really good at that. But she, of course, was resistant to that. And my role as her daughter-in-law definitely complicating things. And I didn't expect to get so angry, but oh my goodness. She wanted to weigh herself. And it's the kind of scale where you have to tap the scale and wait 10 seconds and then step onto it. And if you don't get the timing right, it doesn't work. And by like the 15th time, my head was ready to explode. And I just said, I'm so frustrated right now. I feel like I could just hit you. I'm so angry. I was so angry I had to say it, so I didn't do it. And she just looked over at me and said, you should. And I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. I just want you to know how frustrated I am and it's not your fault, it's not my fault, but let's try to get on the scale when I say step. The work of caregiving includes so many jobs that can make you feel helpless because the person either can't or won't cooperate. It's especially hard to be the caregiver for someone you've had a difficult relationship with. On top of all the feeding, bathing, dressing, and keeping safe, There's also the work of having to reinvent your relationship as things keep changing. A large study of family caregivers show that the single factor that makes the work of caregiving the most difficult is the grief that overlays everything you have to do. You're listening to a special from Safe Space Radio about family caregivers for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. Dementia is a steadily progressive disease, but surprisingly, there are brief moments when the person seems almost like their old self. I was traveling with my two kids, who were seven and nine, to visit with my dad, and I thought a lot about whether I was going to tell him about what was going on. Fran Davis was in the middle of a painful divorce, and her father's dementia was fairly advanced at that point. We arrived late at night, and the kids had fallen asleep in the car, but I kind of corralled them into the house and put them into the bed. And my dad was awake, and he was in the living room. He said, those are your kids. And I said, yeah, Dad, those are my kids. And then he said, where's their father? Or maybe he said, who's their father? So I told him, and he's like, well, where is he? So I thought, well, I I guess I'm going to tell him. So I told him 
in kind of simple language that the marriage had ended in a bad way and that Mark was with this other person now. And my father kind of accessed resources that I hadn't seen in a long time and was never going to see again. And he said, Mark is an idiot. And anybody that would leave you is stupid. And he's never going to find anybody who's as smart as you, as pretty as you, as funny as you. And any man would be lucky to be with somebody who's as smart as you, as pretty as you, as funny as you. He said those things probably 20 times. But in a way, you know, you just can't hear those things enough. And we cried and hugged and went to sleep. And the next morning, the kids got up and we decided we would go out for pancakes. He again looked at me and he's like, these are your kids? And he's like, who's their father? <laughs> These brief moments of clarity, when it seems like the person you knew is back, can make it extremely difficult for caregivers to get a handle on what's happening with their loved one. Frances Randolph witnessed such a moment with her husband Morty when he was in the hospital. We were walking in the hallway. He was walking with my daughter and I, and he fell, and I couldn't lift him. And so my daughter went running to get help. And in this loud full voice that we hadn't heard in a long time. He said, this is no way to live. By the time the help had come, he was gone, like he had never said it. It was very painful because there was a huge gulf between what was and what is. These flickers back to where this person used to be fully cognizant and fully present keep people confused even more. They both love that happening, and it also hurts them. In 1974, psychologist and author Pauline Boss began working with the U.S. Navy, interviewing the wives of pilots who were declared missing in action in Vietnam and Cambodia. The families were unsure if their loved one was alive or dead, and this caused them a great deal of confusion and suffering. They were caught in limbo, not knowing whether to grieve. She decided that this experience, in which the person in your life is both there and not there at the same time, needed a name. She called it ambiguous loss. Twelve years later, she was working with family caregivers for dementia when she noticed the same phenomenon, but the other way around. The person was physically present, but in a way, not there at all. The person's memory is fading, their cognitive abilities might be fading, and they may not even know you anymore. This is extremely confusing for families. Through no fault of their own, it becomes a complicated loss and therefore a complicated grief. With dementia, the work of caregiving is always being complicated by this question. Are they still aware? We either want to think of them as completely gone, so we don't feel guilty if we don't visit, thinking they'll never remember it anyway. Or we imagine that they're still aware of everything and we feel guilty for every moment we don't spend with them. This uncertainty is especially confusing when there are these rare moments of clarity. Because then they think, look, he was just back. Maybe dad or my loved one isn't really sick. It adds to the confusion, even though they find those moments joyful. Your only hope is to increase your tolerance for ambiguity. I encourage both and thinking to help with that, where you keep two separate truths in your mind at the same time. My loved one is here, but they're also gone. It's so difficult to hold these two things in mind at the same time. But at least recognizing that this ambiguity is the source of the confusion and pain helps. Because our society doesn't really know what to do with this kind of loss. With ambiguous loss, There is no greeting card, there is no gathering of people, there are no rituals. The community, for the most part, has not recognized even that there is that type of loss. So the family is left on its own. People, as soon as they realized that he was sick, his friends didn't come and see him. That's my mother, 
Claire. One friend came to see him once and dead silence throughout. So they don't come back, you know. It was more me feeling the loss of all the friends, though I could go and see them and did, but they didn't come. For me, visiting my dad sometimes felt like being with a living ghost. My father was right there in front of me, looking like himself, except for his eyes, which were blank and empty. It haunted me. I could see why it was hard for anyone to visit him, because it was hard for me. Frances also felt many of her friends drifting away after her husband was diagnosed. Caregiving is very different for different diseases. When one is looking after someone who has cancer, the community around you seems to grow. But when one is looking after someone who has Alzheimer's, the community shrinks because people realize that there's no hope. And maybe part of the strong community is that somehow cancer is not embarrassing and Alzheimer and dementia are. When a person has cancer, their mind is working. They know how to sit at a table and eat like people. They know that you don't reach into the platter and just take it with your hands. They know all those things. And you're not standing on edge waiting for that faux pas to happen. My father's frontotemporal dementia began with social inappropriateness. One time, my sister and I had taken him for a walk and picked some purple wildflowers for him from the side of the road. When we came back inside, we stepped into the elevator of his apartment building, along with a woman wearing a sari. I said hello to her, but we didn't speak the same language. I tried to get my dad interested in the flowers, saying, Dad, you want to smell the flowers? He suddenly lunged forward with his mouth open and took a bite out of the bouquet. My sister and I were horrified, but not nearly as horrified as the woman in the sari. She pressed her body into the corner of the elevator, trying to get as far away from us as possible. She pushed the button for the next floor and leapt off the elevator as fast as she could. After that, we were afraid to take him out in public again. So isolation is created from all sides. Friends don't come over because the visits are so painful and awkward. And caregivers tend to go out less because it's so hard to take the person out with you or because they create an embarrassing scene when you do. Dangerous things can happen, like running into traffic. Increasingly, the caregiver is left alone at home, looking after someone who's becoming less and less able to hold a conversation. I knew I was depressed because I didn't want to get up in the morning. And I've been depressed before in my life, and and I knew I couldn't go there. This is Liz again. She and her husband were taking care of her mother at home while they both had jobs. I get to a point where I don't want to function, and I don't want to do the things that make me happy. I start sleeping a lot. I know it's time to call the doc because I have to get up in the morning. I have responsibilities. Who is going to take care of her? Caregivers tend to have these things in common. You don't get enough sleep, you feel down, you have trouble making decisions, you feel guilty, it's hard to enjoy things, and you're thinking about death more than you used to. If you told a doctor these things, they'd immediately assume you were depressed, because the conditions of caregivers almost precisely mimic the diagnostic criteria for depression. Two-thirds of caregivers for family members with dementia report depression. In a way, it's amazing that the other third don't. Indeed, a percentage may need medical attention if they have a true depression where they can't get out of bed in the daytime, they can't function. But most of the caregivers are simply sad and grieving. And the intervention for that is human connection. Human connection is essential for caregivers of any loved one who has an illness. Isolation is very, very harmful. And isolation can be dangerous to the person you're caring for as well. When caregivers are coping with the impossible, all on their own, they are more apt to lose it and lash out. The Coalition to Reduce Family Violence in Portland, Maine, conducted a large-scale survey of caregivers and were surprised to find that between 30 and 40% of caregiver relationships had some form of abuse, in which they had shaken, hit, or yelled at the person they were caring for. 
The survey identified three things that, when combined, created a situation where elder abuse was more likely to occur. They were long hours leading to exhaustion, social isolation, and having a difficult relationship with a person before they got ill. These three conditions are incredibly common, and so it's easy to see how readily a caregiver can get pushed to the edge. Dr. Pauline Boss. We need to have more empathy for the caregivers of loved ones who have dementia. We need to pay attention so that they stay healthy because they have a long journey ahead of them with this confusing illness, this stress and anxiety that is a normal outcome of it, and the sadness of grieving for as long as they are witnessing their loved ones fade away. We need to understand that they are grieving along the way and that that is normal. After a short break, we're going to look at how people do manage this work with all its confusion and grief and what people in the community can do to help. While we're gone, check out Safe Space Radio's Facebook page to share your stories about dementia and find links to resources for caregivers. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and you're listening to a special production of Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Picture a job description that reads, Caregiver Wanted for In-Home Care, 24 hours a day, no days off. You will look after someone who has difficulty communicating, exhibits erratic and unpredictable behavior, and who may be uncooperative and resentful of you. You will be expected to do all the feeding, bathing, dressing, and safety monitoring of this person alone for up to a decade or more. There is no financial compensation. Today we're hearing about the challenges faced by women who find themselves doing this job that no one would volunteer for because they love a spouse or a parent who has dementia. Three years in, Liz Havu's role had expanded beyond preparing her mother's meals and making sure she took her medication. I would literally get in the shower with her and I'd turn it on and I'd get her soaked up and I would rum it in my arms and say, okay, do it like this and, you know, don't forget to get your pot, you know. And I just, I was at a point where I couldn't do it by myself anymore. All caregivers realize eventually that this is impossible to do alone. For Liz, the moment came one day after she had to leave her mother for a few hours. I got home and I go in her bathroom and there is feces on the toilet, on the floor, and up the wall. And I'm like, oh my God. And I said, I can't do this. I cannot do this by myself. I need help now. Now. Ideally, this moment of realizing you need help comes sooner rather than later. But paid help is expensive. And sending your loved one to a daycare center for seniors can make you worry if they'll be okay in their new surroundings. It's one thing if you have to do it to go to work. It's another if you do it to preserve your own sanity. Claire Hallward. I suppose I thought I should have been the one cleaning him up, dealing with his diapers, being there at night when he got up. But I was thankful I wasn't. I didn't want to be the one responsible, <laughs> which is a selfish way of looking at it. I didn't feel capable, which I felt guilty about, too. There's so much pressure on women to be caregivers and to put our own needs second. It's a paradox, isn't it? The people who've been giving the most, sacrificing so many of their former activities and friendships, end up feeling guilty for needing to take some time for themselves. You're sitting there and you're watching this person disintegrate on a daily basis. This is a person that you loved and you're feeling like you're drowning and you can't come up for air. Frances knew that she wasn't going to survive if she kept taking care of her husband alone. She decided to enroll him in the local Alzheimer's Day program and she joined a support group. I made a decision that I was still a mother and a grandmother and a friend and that I needed to be those things as well. And I was going to breathe again. 
If you don't give yourself permission to have a life, you also don't allow the person who's suffering to have any kind of life either because in a sense, you're the only contact that that person has with the outside world. So if you can't smile and bring sunshine into the room, then there's nothing there because that person is not capable of doing that at all. My mother, Claire, was lucky to be able to afford professional caregivers to help look after my dad at home. I learned a lot from one of his caregivers, William, who had left a parcel on the kitchen table in a paper bag. And John and I were sitting there having a cup of coffee or something, and he said, what's in that parcel? So I said, I don't know, John, it's William's parcel. He put it there, he'll come and get it. He said, well, shouldn't we put it in the fridge? And I said, I think if it should be in the fridge, William would have put it in the fridge. We can just leave it. But he went on and on and on. Shouldn't we put it in the fridge? Why don't we know what's in it and what is it? And I was beginning to lose it and say, John, for God's sake, leave it alone. And William finally came in. John said, what's in that parcel? Shouldn't it be in the fridge? Sure, says William, and puts it in the fridge. And I thought, how simple. Don't argue. It's useless. In my field of psychiatry, we used to believe it was important to keep bringing dementia patients back to reality correcting them, and reorienting them to the right date, time, and place. But it is so much easier for both of you when you can join them in their reality and just go along with it. Just put the parcel in the fridge. No harm done. There are many programs that offer support to in-home family caregivers. Some are services to lighten the load, giving them time away to get a break. These include daycare programs for those with dementia, residential respite homes, in-home paid caregivers, nursing homes, and hospice care. Some communities bring visitors to caregivers through Meals on Wheels or friendly drop-ins from community police. There are also programs to help with the emotional toll of caregiving, like support groups and classes. The prevalence of isolation and depression is real among family caregivers and a growing public health concern, so it's vital that our communities offer programs like these. But there are also things that each of us as friends and family can do to make a difference. Neighbors should go and visit caregivers if caregivers can't go out. Again, Dr. Pauline Boss. And they need to go out to dinner once a week or in the house dinner once a week, but with someone else who is fully and cognitively present. Otherwise, their own cognitive abilities will go down. As overwhelming as the job of caregiving is for the caregiver, It can also be overwhelming for those on the sidelines, watching their friends and neighbors go through something painful. You want to help, but may be afraid to take on more than you can handle. The thought of sitting with someone who doesn't recognize you or isn't able to talk can feel understandably awkward and uncomfortable. But being there to support the caregiver can be easier than you think. What families tell me is they want other people in the community to recognize their suffering. They want other people to say, how are you and what can I do to help? Would you like to go to dinner sometime? Would you like me to bring dinner in and we can watch a TV show? They could be simple. In my practice, I often see caregivers who are overwhelmed with balancing all the work and finding time to care for themselves. I encourage them to concentrate their efforts on the things they're good at. And usually what that comes down to is relationship and connection. You can find help with the feeding, bathing, dressing, cooking, and night duty. What no one else can do is maintain the relationship between you and your family member. A lot of what I know about this I learned from Stephen Sabat, a neuropsychologist at Georgetown University who specializes in communication with people with Alzheimer's disease. He suggests that even with someone like my father, who was essentially mute and hadn't recognized me in years, it might be possible to communicate in a deeper way. It's something Dr. Sabat calls assuming meaning. Each of us wants desperately to be understood. And when somebody does understand us, we're so gratified. The person who's got Alzheimer's wants to be understood too. 
They're trying their best to try to make sense to other people and make contact. And so the least we can do is honor that and try to understand and show. I'm really interested in what you have to say. Assuming meaning means relating to them as if they are still aware. You have to listen, even when it seems like they don't have anything to say. So by talking to my father as if he were mentally present, it might actually help him connect with me through his eyes, a smile, and maybe even words. This took a real leap of faith, but one night I asked his caregiver to leave and sat holding his hand, telling him stories about when he taught me how to ride my bike. I stayed with him, looking him in the eyes, and after a long silence, he spoke. He said, I'm sorry, I'm not wise. I tried to hold on to him with my eyes. I tried to respond, but he slipped away again. It was the last time he spoke to me directly. For those few seconds, I could feel he was still in there, aware of his illness and my sadness. It challenges us to see the humanity in another person. And even if it's painful, and even, you know, they're not the way they used to be, there is somebody there. And that person knows that I know that he or she is there. That is huge. And even if it lasts for two minutes, it's huge. Not every person with dementia is capable of responding to these attempts to make contact. But many are. It can be easy to miss when they seem gone with vacant eyes and there's no visible recognition. And yet, sometimes, the way you relate to them can change the way they are able to relate to you. As the illness progresses, there's a big topic on the minds of caregivers that often goes unnamed. Family caregivers often think about and hope for the death of the person they are caring for. Eve is from Maryland. She and her sister were sharing caregiving duties for her mother. And as the disease progressed, things got very difficult. There was a time period when I would go and she would sort of yell at me for an hour in Yiddish. One time she was yelling about turning on or off the light in the bathroom, but I wasn't sure. But I went and started doing all these things in the bathroom because she was screaming at me. It was a totally painful phase of our relationship. I was just exhausted. And I kept thinking to myself, my mother would never approve of me being in this abusive situation, even if it was with her. And I went to bed crying, and I just said, God, take me. <laughs> I'm ready. Or take her, but I'm not going to wish her dead. But I really do wish her dead. And I was just so conflicted. All I knew is I didn't ever want to see her again. These feelings are a normal response to a desperate situation especially one with no end in sight. In many ways, wishing your loved one dead is also an expression of compassion. The person with dementia has a very poor quality of life. Death can seem merciful. But even so, it goes against something very primal in us. To talk about her dying, it sounds cold, but my mother never, ever wanted to be a burden to us. Liz, have you? If she really, really knew how stressful and how hard this is, she would want to die. So in many ways for me to say that I wish she would, it's I know that she would. I know that that's what she would want. A lot of people would go, oh, you can't think that way. But no, it's hard to say, but it's okay to say it out loud. It's healing, it's helpful, and it takes some of that ick that's inside you and brings it out. I wish more people could say it because just knowing that you're not alone is huge. It really is huge. You can imagine how hard it might be to admit thinking something like that. It's important that caregivers are able to talk about it and feel understood. So as their friend, it's a real gift to let them know that you get it. You're listening to a special from Safe Space Radio about family caregivers for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. 
It's important that caregivers think and talk about their loved one's death ahead of time. Planning for it can feel like a betrayal, but there are important decisions to be made that can protect your loved one from prolonged suffering. Many families sign a DNR order, which stands for Do Not Resuscitate. It means the patient won't be shocked back to life if their heart stops, and they won't be put on a ventilator if they stop breathing. But for people with dementia, a DNR order does not address a far more likely cause of death, aspiration pneumonia. Eventually, dementia makes it difficult to swallow and food gets into the lungs, causing an infection. During medical school and residency, I saw many people with advanced dementia admitted to the hospital with aspiration pneumonia. Many lay rigidly in contorted positions because their limbs had stiffened from lying in bed so long. These men and women were caught in a repetitive cycle of pneumonia, antibiotics, pneumonia, antibiotics, and I couldn't help but feel that every time we treated them, we were prolonging their suffering. When left untreated, pneumonia actually leads to a gentle and painless death. And that's what I wanted for my father when the time came. We made a decision as a family not to give him antibiotics if he got pneumonia. We wrote up a healthcare directive for him that each of us signed, asking that he be made comfortable, but that nothing be done to prolong his life. Here's my mother. I was asleep one night fairly late, and they called me from the nursing home and said, your husband has a temperature of 104, and I went. And they had moved him into a very nice single room. Four of the children were there, and we were crying, laughing, reminiscing, and suddenly John's breathing changed, and we all went around the bed and were holding his hands and his feet. And I sort of heard myself say, John, it's okay to go. You have done everything for us. You've made everything possible. We love you, and it's okay. We're fine. And one of the children said, you go with our love. And his eyes, which had been tight shut, flew open. And then he got up on his elbow and looked up. And then he fell back. And he gave two big sighs and stopped breathing. It was very peaceful. That's what I remember. One of the things I feel best about is that we were able to help give my father a good death. He didn't suffer, it didn't go on and on, and he was surrounded by love. I felt like we'd done right by him. Liz Have You kept her mother at home until she died. It was a lot of work and took a lot of help, but it was important to her to do that. After her mother's death, Liz took some time before the funeral home came to collect her mom's body, to spend one last moment with her. I went in my mother's room and I closed the door. I put on a song that I wanted to hear and I cried. I held her and I cried. Said goodbye and waited for the funeral guys to get there. And we got her into her favorite nightgown and she was, you know, laying in the bed. And the two guys that came to get her, they have a way of doing it. They're very respectful and very gentle. And the compliment they paid me was huge. The guy looked at me and he goes, this lady's been cared for. And I went, thank you. I did my job. My mother. would have been very proud that I did my job. Knowing you've done a good job is so important. You want to know you've honored this person. There are many ways that we can acknowledge the caregivers in our lives, letting them know that we see the beauty and tremendous work in what they've done. Dr. Ken Doka is a professor of gerontology and an expert on grief. He helped a recently widowed caregiver to create a special ritual. 
they had the funeral, but she still had her wedding ring on. And she came to me and she said, I just can't seem to take the ring off. And we talked about how important it was to her and how she felt she had kept her vow, you know, in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad. What we decided to do was to create a ritual for her to take off her ring. So she went back to the parish she was married in. The priest called her up to the altar and then did the wedding vows, but in past tense. Were you faithful in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad? And she said, I was. And he said, may I have the ring, please? This vow is now complete. And uh, she had kept his wedding ring. And the priest took the rings, had them interlocked and welded to her wedding picture. When someone with dementia dies, there is loss and a gradual process of realizing that they are really permanently gone, like the grief we have when anyone we love dies. When my father died, the most surprising thing for me was the feeling that I got him back. I went from feeling sorry for myself that I had a father who got ill so young to feeling lucky to have had the dad I had before he was ill. We as caregivers and family forget because There's so much loss along the way that we don't remember the person that was. Frances cared for her husband, Morty, for almost 10 years. A few months after his death, their daughter put together a video for a family gathering with old footage of Morty making a speech before he had dementia. In the video, he was surrounded by all of our friends, and he just got up and welcomed everybody to our family and talked about how important it was to have family and talked about the kids. And it was just that happiness and the proudness and those those dancing blue eyes that I had forgotten about because his eyes had been dull for such a long time. One of the most important things I've learned as a psychiatrist is that when someone dies, the relationship you have with them doesn't. It stays with you and keeps evolving and changing. Over time, you start to understand more about them, discovering things you couldn't see in the moment. He had a drawer in the night table that he kept all kinds of junk in. After he passed away, when I was going through that drawer, He had listed the names of the children so he wouldn't forget them. He had put the days in order so that he could remember. When I went through that drawer, it was very painful because I had not been the best person or the kindest or the most understanding person all the time. I tried, but we're all human. But when I saw this, I realized how hard... He tried to hang on. With dementia, there are so many things the person can't tell you directly, which you can only see later looking back. After the caregiving is all over, you begin to see them with new eyes. And if you're lucky, you begin to see yourself with new eyes too, feeling more compassion for yourself for the times you were desperate to get away, the times you almost lost it with them, the times you wanted them to die, and the times you felt heartbroken that this person right in front of you was a million miles away. Remembering all the work, all the grief, and all the love. I want to close on a personal note that is particular to caregivers and family members who are the children of parents with dementia. We carry an extra fear of getting the disease ourselves. Research shows that there can be a genetic component to Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. So when your parents get it, you feel extra vulnerable. This fear can cloud the caregiving relationship because at each stage of the disease, you're wondering, what if this happens to me? After my father died, I was still haunted by this fear, worried that every small lapse in memory was a sign that I was already slipping. I knew I couldn't control whether I would get the disease, but there were some things I could do. I set up long-term care insurance so my family wouldn't be burdened by the cost of caring for me. I created an advanced directive in case I get dementia that explicitly said to withhold antibiotics if I get pneumonia. I'm glad I did these things, 
but I was still worrying about it. I knew from my training that if I avoided this fear, it would get worse. That one of the best ways to cope with fear is to face it full on and get support. So I spent some time getting to know my fear, remembering the scenes with my father that had been the most difficult. My dad lost speech early and I often felt helpless watching him, unable to communicate what he needed or what was distressing him. As I remembered, I realized that what I was afraid of was not being treated like a person, not being treated as if I was still me. And most of all, I was afraid of still being in there, but not being able to tell anyone. So I got an idea to write a letter to my future caregivers. I wrote to my husband and son and any professional caregivers who might take care of me. I told them about my fears of being treated like a thing and having things done to me as if I wasn't there. I asked to be read to and to have regular visits with a dog. I talked about the music I like and other things that might comfort me when I'm scared or upset. I wrote about my fear of loneliness, mine and theirs and proposed ways we could stay connected to friends. When I finished, I sent the letter to my closest friends and asked them to visit me periodically and to help my son make decisions about my care if I'm ever diagnosed. I called them my dementia counsel. I put a copy of the letter away and I let my husband know where he could find it if he ever needed to. And then it was done. I was so relieved because I started to notice that I was no longer so preoccupied with getting dementia. I was hardly thinking about it. I had turned to face the dragon of my fear and it no longer had the same power over me. Fear grows in isolation. Writing my fears down for my future caregivers gave me hope that I wouldn't be so alone if the time came. And by sharing them with my friends, I wasn't so alone with them now. I had really become a caregiver to my future self. And what I learned was the same thing that all the caregivers I've spoken to learned. Being a caregiver isn't something you can do alone. We'd love to hear your stories and any thoughts or feelings this show sparked for you. Join our community conversation at safespaceradio.com. We've also posted information on organizations that support caregivers, resources about dementia, and more audio from the guests you heard on this show. Many thanks to senior producer and editor Shay Shackelford, producer and sound designer Gabe Graben, and our editorial advisor Jim Russell. Thanks to the Hope and Grace Foundation for supporting this project. And a special thanks to the many caregivers who spoke with us and generously offered their stories in the hope of helping future caregivers. To subscribe to our podcast or stream any of our shows on important and hard-to-talk-about subjects, visit safespaceradio.com. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this has been a production of Safe Space Radio.